0: But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In a little while, you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, Who is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me? What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, truly truly i say to you whatever you ask of the father in my name he will give it to you until now you have asked nothing in my name ask and you will receive that your joy may be full i have said these things to you in figures of speech the hour is coming when i will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the father in that day you will ask in my name And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the
1: world. I'm excited to introduce uh, to you guys Matt Q. Today he's going to preach, and we call Matt Matt Q, one, because we have a lot of Mats here, um, but two, for the first maybe six months, we thought his last name was Quintana, and it's actually Quintana. He's a really nice guy and never told us that. Someone somehow figured that out. Um, So maybe that's why we refer to him as Matt Q., But uh, Matt started coming uh, in the middle of high school to our youth group. Uh, God just got a hold of his heart, and he started wholeheartedly following Jesus. He's now a junior at Multnomah University uh, studying to be a pastor. Uh, He's working toward that end uh, of serving uh, a church someday um, as a pastor. So one of our jobs as a church is to raise up people in the church and help them find and grow in their spiritual gifts. I was thinking about the church I grew up in, Laurelwood Baptist Church on the east side of Vancouver. and, And my home church did an awesome job of, of helping us grow uh, younger people, growing in our gifts um, and, and today w- there's a ton of people that, that I was in youth group with, before, some before me, some after me, that are, that are out, they're working uh, they're doing missions, they're working in camps they're Serving kids by teaching Sunday school classes, their youth pastors, our pastoral staff, their elders, their deacons. Uh, my church did an awesome job of that, and that's one thing at Harvest that we want to do. We want to help everyone find their gifts. We want to help everyone grow in their gifts. So today we have an opportunity um, to to serve Matt as he serves us in, in bringing the word, as, as he uh, is preparing to to be a pastor someday. Um, I wish that when I was in my early twenties, uh, one that someone would have offered uh, for me to come preach. Two that I would have actually had the courage. I don't know if I would have had the courage when, when I was Matt's age to do this at all, um, but I'm excited. When I asked Matt, he was all over it. There was no hesitation at all, so let me pray as, as uh, Matt comes up here. Jesus, we we love you, and I know that Matt loves you. I know he loves your word, Lord. I know he loves theology. He loves doctrine. He loves studying. God, he loves the, the truth being told in, in a way that, that, um, that we can hear, that we can receive, that we can understand. So We we pray that you'd speak through him today, Holy Spirit, that our hearts would be ready. Whether we came to church ready or not today, Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts? It's in your name we pray. Amen.
2: Good morning. It is a pleasure and a privilege to be with you this morning to bring you God's word. I know we just prayed, but I need God's help, so let's pray again. Father, I thank you for your son and his provision of both peace and and joy, as well as access to you in the Holy Spirit. I ask that your spirit would do today what my words cannot do, would my words be correct, clear, persuasive, and filled with grace. May I say nothing in any way that would hinder the work of your spirit in impacting lives here this morning. I pray all of this for your glory, and in the name of your beloved son, amen. So Tuesday was Christmas Day, and for the past several weeks, we here at Harvest and Christians around the world have been celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, God becoming man to dwell with his people. For Christians, this is a time of great joy as we celebrate the Incarnation, the greatest miracle in human history. Even for those who don't believe in Jesus, Christmas or the holidays are often still a time of great joy. Kids, get a couple of weeks off school. If you're a parent or an adult, you might get some time off work. And we get to spend time with family and loved ones. But what is joy? I remember the days when I couldn't sleep on Christmas Eve. I was so excited to tear open those presents under the tree that next morning. Finally, when my parents would let us get up and we get to see the tree and the lights and all the gifts, that that feeling, that happiness, that excitement, Um, I can remember it so well probably because that all happened again last week, so I, I got, to, uh, got to go out and unwrap gifts. Um, hopefully, I'm not alone in this, and I think we can all agree that as humans, we all seek pleasure and happiness in many different things. In our passage today, John 16:16 16, 16 through 31, Jesus proclaims that he gives joy that is permanent, that no one can take away. But what does he mean by joy? In fact, what does the Bible mean by joy? Certainly, it has to be more than this feeling of happiness or what I describe that I experience on Christmas. According to Scripture, joy is a deep-seated contentment and pleasure independent of the world that delights in the beauty of Christ. For the Christian, this joy is brought about by the Holy Spirit and desires to see and experience the glory of God in his world and in his word. This joy brings about peace, which surpasses all understanding, and this joy brings us hope. This is the joy that Jesus promises in this passage today, and this is the joy we're going to be talking about. We'll see that the point of our text is this. Christ provides permanent joy and peace in place of grief and access to the Father in the Holy Spirit. This is our truth statement, so I'll read it again. Christ provides permanent joy and peace in place of grief, and access to the Father in the Holy Spirit. Our passage today is a part of a much larger section, which spans from chapters 13 through chapter 17. This section is commonly referred to as the farewell discourse because this is the last meeting that Jesus has with his disciples before he goes to the cross. In these chapters, he's preparing them for his impending death and departure. He's tying together many of the emphases of his ministry and of his teaching and really of the gospel of John. In his final speech, Jesus has emphasized his being sent from the Father and his imminent return to him. He's focused on the importance of love and faith. And he's also focused on the future sending of the Holy Spirit. This was discussed in our text from last week. This is part of the reason um, I asked Sherry to read the passage that was um, preached last week because these themes are so connected. Throughout the Gospel of John, and especially within this final speech, Jesus has been teaching his followers about the nature of God as the Trinity, God as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In John, we learn that belief in the true God includes faith in all three of these persons who exist as one being. This becomes very important for our passage today. As we dive into the first half, I'm going to read verses 16 through 24 again. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And also, because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again, A little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. This passage begins with the statement that at first glance seems to be a bit of a riddle. In verse 16, Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you will see me. This verse has not only puzzled scholars and pastors, but even the disciples themselves were confused. In verses 17 and 18, the disciples are quite obviously unsure as to what Jesus meant by this statement. Specifically, they don't quite understand what Jesus meant by a little while, or how this connects to him going to the Father, which he mentioned back in verse 10. They don't know what Jesus intended by the phrase, you will see me. As I hinted, scholars have been divided over how to interpret this verse. Many suggest that the first clause, a little while and you will see me no longer, is referring to the crucifixion that is about to take place. In a very short time, Jesus will be arrested, murdered, and buried, and thus the disciples won't see him any longer. However, this interpretation doesn't completely fulfill the demands of the context of this passage, Here's why. More than a dozen times throughout this speech, this farewell discourse, Jesus has told his disciples that he will be going away and that he will be returning to the Father. Just before our passage in verse 10, he says, because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. These are the exact same words that he says down in verse 16, so it seems most reasonable to conclude that in both places he's talking about the same thing. In other words, when Jesus said, a little while, and you will see me no longer, he meant that after a short period of time, he would return to be with the Father. Now, he most certainly had in mind his mission to come and die and then be resurrected, but ultimately his eyes were set on the fulfillment of this work and his return to heaven. This at least clears up the first half of this verse. We're left with the second part of the statement, and again, a little while, and you will see me. If the first reference was to the crucifixion, it would make sense that this is referring to the resurrection, but I already explained why I don't think this is the case. Another popular opinion is that this is referring to the second coming, when Jesus returns in glory to judge all of mankind But if this were the case, it doesn't make sense for Jesus to call the period in between a little while. Certainly, if he had meant that he would return some point in the disciples' lives, it would be a few years. And for us now, we know Jesus hasn't returned. It's been 2,000 years. By any stretch of the imagination, it's not a little while. What I'm going to pose here is this. What Jesus meant is that in a little while, when the Spirit comes, you will see me with true spiritual sight. There are many reasons for this. The first uh, is a bit grammatical. In Jesus' sentence, two different words are used for see. He says, a little while and you will see me, one word, no longer, and again, a little while and you will see me, using a different word. Because they are both used within the same sentence, it seems that Jesus intends a carefully nuanced distinction and a comparison between them. The first usage refers to seeing Jesus physically, Whereas the second usage is used to refer to spiritual sight that leads to true understanding. In this sense, then, the sight that the disciples are to have of Jesus a little while after his departure is the sight obtained by the coming Spirit. This makes sense because the book of John focuses a lot on sight and blindness. For example, think back to the story of the blind man in chapter 9. Jesus healed him of his blindness, and this was all to illustrate that Jesus, as the light of the world, provides spiritual sight to those who acknowledge their blindness and provides spiritual blindness to those who think they have sight. Also, he has just told his disciples back in verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. When Jesus returns to the Father, he will send the Spirit to be with all who believe in him. And it's through the Spirit that they will have access to Jesus. That is, they will see Jesus. Scholar Edward Clink puts it this way. Seeing God, according to the Gospel of John, is seeing the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. So to summarize what Jesus meant here by this first verse, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, that is, the first little while open the door to true spiritual sight granted by the Holy Spirit after the second little while. If you're taking notes, this is something important to write down. The crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension open the door to true spiritual sight granted by the Holy Spirit. This is what I mean when I say in the truth statement for today that Christ provides permanent joy and peace in place of grief and provides access to the Father and the Holy Spirit. These things are provided through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the Messiah. Though Jesus has gone away physically, he is still accessible to the believer through faith, through prayer, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. After acknowledging the disciples' questions, Jesus begins to explain. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The events that will at first cause the disciples' great sorrow, the crucifixion, and the return of Christ to his Father will be celebrated by the world. In John's Gospel, the world is portrayed as evil, It's portrayed as set against God and His ways, seen clearly in their response to His Son, Jesus. Despite their gloating and happiness, the celebration of the world will be in vain, for Christ has established victory over it through His death and resurrection. This is what leads Him to promise that eventually, the sorrow of his followers will turn into joy. Here's another quote from Klink. It's a little long, but it's really good. The paradox is that the cross is the provision of God and the restoration that God had long promised and would soon provide for his disciples. Jesus here does not refer merely to the transition that the resurrection provides, but to life in the spirit made possible by his death, resurrection, and ascension. What the disciples first received as death and loss in weeping and mourning has itself become the source of their joy. Stated more clearly, in this case, death was the necessary precondition for life. And what the world first received as victory and joy has become itself the source of their defeat. To help clear the confusion, Jesus offers an illustration. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. It's interesting that Jesus uses this example because in the Old Testament, similar illustrations are used to show the suffering that God's people must go through before the immense joy and relief brought about by the Messiah. This is seen in passages like Isaiah 26. Though vivid, the analogy made here is helpful. I'm sure that the mothers in the room can relate. You're pregnant for nine months, you go through the side effects and the hardships that come with bearing a child. You go into labor, you experience excruciating pain, sometimes for hours, but afterwards, the blood, sweat, and tears, a child is born, and as you hold that precious baby in your arms, the pain and all that you've gone through in the past month seems to fade as you're filled with joy holding your newborn son or daughter. Now, this doesn't mean you forget all of the pain and anguish, but there's something greater than that, the child you now possess. So it is with the sorrow that will follow Jesus' death and his departure. Just as the gift of a child requires labor, the gift of true birth, John 3, provided by Christ's death, likewise entails labor. To put this another way, the day Christ died can be called Good Friday only because of Resurrection Sunday. What Jesus said here is echoed by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus implies that the disciples' grief has already begun, starting with his announcement of his impending departure and his death. But he repeats, the disciples will see him again. This reflects what will be his continual presence with them by the Holy Spirit. This is similar to what he stated earlier in his speech, Back in chapter 14, he said, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What we learn from this is that the work of Christ perches irrevocable joy for those who believe. This joy cannot be removed for those who are in Jesus. It is permanent. This does not mean that Christians will never suffer or experience sorrow and pain and hard hard things in their life. What it does mean is that all suffering will be placed within the larger context of Jesus' death and resurrection and the joy purchased by it. Because the source of this joy is infinite, eternal, and not of this world, nothing in this world can take it away. This blood-bought joy affects not only the Christians' experience, but their life and practice as well, especially in prayer. In that day, you will ask nothing of me, Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus has emphasized prayer here these last few chapters in these verses He looks forward to the new state of affairs, inaugurated by his death and resurrection, which is the new covenant. On the basis of Christ's work, believers will now have direct access to the Father through prayer. As a result of his substitutionary death on the cross, those who are in the Spirit may approach God and trust that their prayers will be answered. For the disciples, this type of prayer had not yet occurred because it couldn't take place until Christ made it possible. But through Jesus, a new type of prayer is made available. Prayer to the Father, through the Son, and in the Spirit. Christ provides access to the Father in the Holy Spirit. This new type of prayer in Jesus' name is especially important. It's how one's joy is made complete or full, which is one of the goals of what Jesus has been saying in these last few chapters. Back in chapter 15, he said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So, if you want to deepen your joy in God, it's going to start on your knees before Him in prayer. As we move into the second section of this passage, let me read again verses 25 through 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This next section begins with Jesus explaining that his teaching has been more proverbial in nature, it's been figurative, yet he says this will change at some point in the future when he will speak plainly. According to the rest of the farewell discourse, this coming hour Jesus is referring to is the new way of Christian life in the new covenant under the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In 1613, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The verse before that, in verse 12, Jesus stated that he still had many things to say to his disciples. He couldn't say them to them then, but through the truth-revealing spirit, Jesus will continue to be the teacher. Rather than speak on his own, the Spirit of God carries out the instruction of the Son, essentially repeating what Christ commands. The departure of Jesus is depicted as the continuation and the magnification of his ministry, not the end of it. By means of the Spirit, the body of Christ, the church, is able to fully receive the words of Christ and the truth about God, interpreting them under the guidance of the Helper. Touching again on prayer, Jesus explains that in this future period, after his departure, prayer in the Spirit will be done in his name, that is, under the, uh, under the authority of Christ and through the mediation of Christ. He says, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Jesus also adds an important note about the believer's new relationship with the Father. Because of the cross, the relationship between the Father and the children has been so restored that believers may access him directly in Jesus' name. Other passages of Scripture teach that the Son intercedes on behalf of the Christians to the Father. This is taught in Romans 8 and in Hebrews 7. But the intercession—sorry—mentioned in, intercession, in those passages is in regards to the Christian's status before God, not the ongoing answering of prayer. Here in John, we learn that by means of the cross, the believer can access God directly. Jesus establishes the reason for this change of relationship with the emphatic statement, the Father himself loves you. This should make us pause. I'll say it again. The Father himself loves you. These remarkable words personalize the love of God for the world that we read about in John 3.16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This new life in God is the result of his great and marvelous love, love that originated in him and propelled him to send his son to the cross. In Christ, believers gain a real and personal relationship with God. Through the atoning work of Jesus, God is now able and willing to love us himself. However, it's important to note some of the things implied by Jesus' statement here. First, this great love of the Father mediated through Christ is based upon us loving his Son. Jesus has already explained this, saying back in chapter 14 that a disciple loves God by obeying his commands. 14.21, it says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So it is clear the love of God is expressed through obedience and complete submission to him. To be sure, it is not we who loved first as if his love was contingent upon ours, but God who first loved us. In 1 John four ten, it states, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. A few verses later, John adds, We love because he first loved us. Also, this access to the Father is based upon belief, specifically in Christ and his mission. The concept of faith and belief is central to the Gospel of John, and it's clear that true faith must have Christ the Son as its object. In this context, faith is placed not only in the person of Jesus, but in his mission and his work. This is explained in verse 28... I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This short verse is essentially a summary of Jesus' mission and really of the entire gospel of John. Condescension and incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension and glorification. In one sentence, Jesus has summarized the story of the gospel. Shifting back to the disciples we read, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Here we find another example of irony in the gospel according to John. Jesus has just explained in verse 25 that the hour is coming. Therefore, it has not yet come. The disciples, though, are convinced that they now understand the meaning of Christ's words, and they understand what it means to believe in Him. Don Carson, in commenting on this verse, puts it bluntly No misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. The disciples still don't understand. In fact, they can't until the Spirit is sent. Firing back in verse 31 with a rhetorical question, Jesus says, Do you now believe? This question offers a pointed rebuke and a retort to the disciples who have just offered quite an ignorant declaration. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Verse 32. Countering their statement, Jesus restates the importance of the coming hour, which the disciples had clearly misidentified. Here, Jesus predicts that at the moment of crisis, the self-proclaimed faith and allegiance of his followers will fail. They will be scattered, disbanded, and will abandon the one they professed as Lord. Through this rebuke, Jesus also reveals the true nature of his mission and faith in him. Though they claim to understand what it means to have faith in Christ, here Jesus shows that they don't fully get it. At this point, the disciples had no category for a Messiah who would come and suffer and die, who would lay down his life for his friends. As Jesus says back in John 15:13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Most importantly, though, humans may leave him. His father remains in him and with him. This signifies that Jesus is exactly where he's supposed to be. Even though the world, his disciples included, will think Jesus has been conquered, the Father's presence declares that this is not so. Thankfully, this passage does not end with rebuke. Jesus states, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Restating the purpose for these words, Jesus claims that he has said all these things so that in me you may have peace. This is what he promised in chapter 14, and here at the end of his speech, he confirms it. Christ makes another promise. However, believers will endure tribulation and suffering. Indeed, the apostle Paul writes, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Christians can be sure that they will go through hardships. They will go through suffering. However, they can also be sure of something else. Christ has overcome the world. This certainty is the essence of true peace. Christ has overcome the world. Commanded to be courageous, believers are to find their strength not in the world, nor in themselves, but in the finished work of Jesus the Christ. With Him as the object of faith, believers can be sure that they are grounded in reality far more powerful than that which surrounds them and threatens them. Christ provides permanent joy and peace in place of grief. Do you believe that Jesus has really done this for you? He really means for you to access the gifts that He has given to you. Peace and joy are not out of reach, they can be yours in Christ. If you are a Christian, Are these increasing realities in your life? We are meant to live out of this peace and joy. We're meant to act it out. It should impact the way that we live. We know that Christ has conquered, and therefore our lives should reflect this truth. The finished work of Christ is what provides true peace, joy, and encouragement in the face of suffering and affliction. When Jesus announced that he has overcome the world, he speaks as a powerful victor, the conqueror of sin, death, and Satan. The entire gospel of John has made clear that the cross of Christ is the defeat of the world. As John states back in the prologue, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, five. Though to the world, the death of Christ may look like defeat, the cross was actually the ultimate victory and is the grounds for the believer's peace and joy. This passage teaches us that Christ provides permanent joy in place of grief, as well as access to the Father in the Holy Spirit. We have seen clearly that believers will encounter grief, pain, and suffering, yet there's greater promises that we must cling to. Because of the work of Christ, we may have permanent and lasting joy, joy that is deeper than any of our sorrows and more powerful than any of the trials we may go through. As I stated earlier, Christian, joy is a deep-seated contentment and pleasure independent of the world that delights in the beauty of Jesus Christ. This spirit-wrought, blood-bought joy in the glory of Christ sustains us. No one can take it away. I want you to leave today with these words ringing in your ears, implanted on your minds and fixated on your heart. If you are in Christ, your sorrow will turn into joy. No one can take that joy from you because Jesus has overcome the world. If you are in Christ, your sorrow will turn into joy. No one can take that joy from you because Jesus Christ has conquered the world. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I ask that you would reflect on your life. What do you think brings you joy I promise you, backed by the authority of Scripture and the words of Christ himself, anything you consider to be joy in your life is nothing compared to the glory and worth of Christ. Joy found in money, in work, sex, relationships, power, or anything else is rubbish compared to the joy promised and realized in the Messiah. Nothing in this world compares to the glory the glory of Jesus and the joy found in him. Nothing. If you are here and you realize that you do not have true joy, or better yet, the object of that joy, Jesus himself, but you want to receive it, please talk to someone after the service, myself or anyone of the elders or staff members or someone on the prayer team who will be in the back would love to talk to you. We would love to explain more about what it means to put faith in Christ and how to receive this joy. True and lasting joy that no one or nothing can take from you is found in Christ and Christ alone. By believing in him, repenting of sins, and submitting to him, you may receive joy and access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. You may also be here thinking you are a Christian, but as you listen and examine your life, the joy Jesus has spoken about here seems to be absent from your life. If you are not content in Christ and Christ alone, if he is not more precious to you than anything in this world, you may not yet possess the joy that Jesus here promises. Even the disciples, those close to Jesus, seemed to have false confidence about their faith. They thought that Christ was simply the one who would teach them, not the one who would transform them. The question Jesus asked them can be directed at us as well. Do you now believe? Have you, like the disciples, misunderstood what true faith is? Have you professed faith and love of Christ, yet live unchanged by his joy and his grace? Has pride or ignorance minimized any of the particulars of the gospel? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, today is the day to change that. Christ provides permanent joy in place of grief. Through the Spirit, We are able to communicate with the Father, and our fellowship with him is secured by the work of the Son. Christian prayer is to be Trinitarian in nature. By that I mean to the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. There's no need to pray individually to the Father and then to the Son and to the Spirit as if they're not all being addressed as we talk to the Father. When we address the Father, we are also speaking to and through the Son and the Spirit. Christ provides access to the Father in the Holy Spirit. This Trinitarian prayer is a great privilege. Those who believe are given the opportunity to come before the God of the universe and relational communication. May our Christian lives bear the symptoms of having seen and known God the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. Jesus concluded his farewell discourse with a grand declaration of victory. Victory, victory. ultimately was achieved by a sacrifice of love on the cross. As we just celebrated Christmas and the incarnation, we must also look forward to the death and resurrection where God displayed his victory over all enemies, past, present, and future. Christ the Lord has defeated death through his own death, and he has purchased eternal life for all who would believe in him. For those of us who have put our joy in Jesus Christ, not only are we given peace and joy as one of the many blessings of life in him, but also Christ's victory belongs to us. The Apostle John makes this clear in one of the letters he wrote. He says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 1 John 5, 4-5. So, to the weary believer, burdened by pain and sorrow, take heart, Christ the King has conquered. To the afflicted saint, drowning in anguish and suffering, draw near to Christ, have courage, the Lamb who was slain has overcome the world. To any Christian feeling held captive by sin, be bold, stand tall, the Son of Man has died for your sins and has defeated death. Worthy is he to receive all blessing and glory and honor and power forevermore. If you believe in Christ, the Father loves you. He sent his Son to die for you, and he purchased for you eternal life by his blood. Through the Spirit, he has given you joy that is irrecoverable and permanent. By his death, you may find true peace. I'll close with the words of Jesus. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, my friends. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. This has provided for us joy and peace that are lasting, that are permanent. We know that aside from the work of your Son, we remain separated from you because of our sin. But because of your great love, you sent Jesus into the world. Through faith in him, we may be regenerated by the Spirit and empowered to live lives ever conforming to the image of the Son. Would you help us to live into the joy and peace purchased for us by Jesus? Through the Holy Spirit, would we respond to the glorious truths revealed in your word? We ask that you would guide us in love and in truth, all to the praise of your glorious name. Amen.